Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So far, we've had more than 350 mass shootings this year. According to a recent survey, around one in five Americans has lost a family member to gun violence. One in five. More than half of American adults have said that they or a family member have experienced a gun-related incident. More than half. The violence, terror, and trauma doesn't happen in a vacuum. This country is awash with guns, and the gun lobby is using its power to both increase access to them and to expand gun owners' right to shoot first and ask questions later. On July 2nd, Florida joined 25 other states in allowing permitless carry. Florida, after hosting a string of gut-wrenching mass shootings, has leaned in to its permissive stand-your-ground laws. Caroline Light, who literally wrote the book on these laws, writes for the Tampa Bay Times that Florida has become the stand-your-ground hellscape in which lethal violence can be shoehorned into a tidy narrative of armed good guys deflecting a multitude of suspicious bad guys. Never mind that those presumed bad guys often turn out to be pool cleaners, ride-sharing customers, furniture delivery people, and sometimes neighbors. And sometimes the guy who's coming to kill you. But can we take a moment and ask what in the world is the terminology regarding lethal violence? I mean, what a what a turn of phrase. Lethal violence. Welcome to the stand-your-ground hellscape in which lethal violence can be shoehorned into a tidy narrative of armed good guys deflecting a multitude of suspicious bad guys. Stand-your-ground allows you to defend yourself. Is the argument that one should not be able to defend themselves? And if we go back to Joy Reid's original point, because that's who's talking, Joy Reid on MSNBC, her statement was one in five Americans... Let's hear this one more time. According to a recent survey, around one in five Americans has lost a family member to gun violence. But the article that they're showing from NBC News says one in five adults in the U.S. have been threatened by guns, according to a survey. A number I find questionable, just as questionable as I find the the idea of the statistic of 350 mass shootings. I guess it depends on how you categorize mass shooting unless they mean shootings and not necessarily people dying in which case i'll let others dig in on that tony katz tony katz today it's good to be with you this was joy reed on msnbc and of course it is the standard anti-gun rhetoric but there is nothing wrong with asking the question of what's going on and oddly enough she does it i was surprised to hear it she's got this guest on And she actually asks the question. I have to say, I did not go out on July 4th and would not. The idea of going to a mass gathering, a parade or a big fireworks thing outside seems insane to me, to be blunt, in America. Because America is awash with guns and now people don't just have them. They seem to want to shoot people with them and use them for whatever, you know. What do you think has changed in this country, um, which has always had a lot of guns uh, in the recent years to make it a shooting gallery. Now, never mind how odd I find it that somebody won't leave their house. You realize Joy Reid is asking the right question. Joy Reid is asking the question that we discuss right here. What has changed? She admits 
the basic fact that America has always had guns. What has changed? Aha! It, it, it's, it's like the joke that Eddie Murphy tells in Coming to America when he's dressed up as the old Jewish man. That's right. He does Jewish face, and I think it's funny. He's like, uh, a guy walks into a restaurant. He orders the soup. Uh, the soup comes. The guy calls the waiter over and says, taste the soup. The waiter says, there's something wrong with the soup. The, the guy says, just taste the soup. The waiter says, what's wrong with the soup? The waiter says, the, the guy says, just taste the soup. The waiter says, there's no spoon. And the guy goes, aha. That's, that's the joke. That moment of, oh, of course, there's no spoon. How could you eat the soup with no spoon? How is it that we were a nation that had guns and had guns from our founding and has always believed in the ability to protect and defend oneself? And now all of a sudden, you've got shootings going on everywhere. What changed? What happened? Joy Reid has asked the right question, and I don't think she understands how profound it is that she asked the right question. As a matter of fact, for asking the question, I wonder if she's going to get vilified. Now, I, admittedly, I don't uh, play uh, the answer from the guy uh, that, that she's, she's talking to, and it's always about doing away with firearms, this, that, and the other. The question of the rational mind is not how do we take away rights, but rather what is happening in a society where people have lost themselves. And we discuss it here as cultural rot and societal rot. We discuss it here as well when you've taught people to hate each other, despise each other, look at the other person as the enemy, look at everything as oppressed and oppressor, look at everyone as an attacker, and in more cultural areas, look at everybody who slights you or does you wrong as somebody who has dishonored you and you must respond with a level of force. Is, is anyone surprised? And how does one fix it? And does Joy Reid not recognize that maybe some of her own lexicon, some of her own attitudes, some of her own conversations lead to the division and the destruction? And maybe she can be part of what changes it back. The question forces one to look for the answer. And I don't know if she's willing to do it, but that she asked the question in and of itself. Amazing to me. Amazing that she had that moment of clarity. Too bad I don't think she'll use it for the next step. What actually happened in Russia with the so-called coup? That story's coming up. I'm Tony Katz. Now, maybe it's because last week I was on vacation when quite literally every news story in America was breaking. You had all the Supreme Court uh, decisions going on uh, in, in my beloved Indianapolis. My gosh, there was a ton of news. And then, of course, there was the story of a coup. I mean, the first text I got from somebody in the know was, hey, you might want to take some cash out of the bank because if Putin decides to get angry, it's going to be nothing but cyber attacks against the U.S. banking system. And I said, oh, well, this is one heck of a way to start a vacation, isn't it? But for everything that took place in those 36, 48, 72 hours where Prigozhin was leading this PMC, this private military company, Wagner, and was heading up to Moscow and he was going to take on Putin because Putin had attacked him or he didn't attack him. Maybe it didn't matter. False flag, not false flag. This was a moment 
for Prigozhin. Next thing you know, he's a couple hundred miles from Moscow. He's not meeting any resistance. He turns around and he leaves. Next thing you know, Prigozhin's gone. Is he in Belarus? Nobody knows. The people who are part of his private military company are now signed up to be soldiers in the Russian army. Putin's still in power, but what actually happened here? Doesn't that matter? And why in the world would a story this big go so quiet so quick? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Let me bring in right now Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army West Point guy. Let's start from the beginning because I think I've given a good overview of what happened in the lead up and then what happened thereafter, but no one's given a good answer to what the hell actually happened here. So walk us through the pieces. Why did Yevgeny Prigozhin, Yevgeny Prigozhin, or forgive me, why did he decide that somehow the Russian military attacked him, meaning Vladimir Putin attacked him through one of his ministers? Why did he decide to go straight on to Moscow? And why did he decide to turn around? Yeah, Tony, you set it up very well. Great to be back with you. Um, let's yeah, take it from the very beginning. So he runs the Wagner Group, which is basically Vladimir Putin's private mercenary army. They have influence not just in Ukraine after fighting in Bakhmut and other places along the front, but they have tentacles in Syria. They have tentacles in Africa. They're, they're on the lead of Russia trying to secure rare earth minerals, which are the whole world's fighting for those right now. And so, you know, Prigozhin for the past few months had kind of set the, the table a little bit about a rebellion he might have based on some of the comments he'd been make about the support for Moscow. So the, the Wagner group is not treated like regular Russian soldiers. They get fed better. They have better equipment and better uniforms They're You know, the, initially they, you know, out of prisons or so, but, but, you know, great, not great soldiers, but the bottom line is that they get funded. Well, he decided he had enough. This was a mutiny, no question about it. After those troops had been pulled off the front from from Bakhmut and um, Rostov Amdam was a place where Russia has significant logistics, logistical support. And he decides to put a group together and do a road march and see how far they could go. Now, it's not a coup. They weren't looking to overthrow Vladimir Putin, but he was sending a signal to Shoigu and to Gerasimov, the other Russian military leaders saying that they were doing poorly. Um, he he, he thought no, Vladimir Putin, Wait yeah. one second. Let's take a step back. It mm -hmm. wasn't a coup. Every conversation no. about it being a coup and Prigozhin was looking to take on uh, Putin, take over Putin. That was all wrong. Yeah, it wasn't a coup. It was a mutiny. And there's a difference because a coup would mean, you know, he would have to have taken over the communications. He would have to have done a lot to overthrow the government. Look, he got about 120 miles from Moscow. There was nothing stopping him from continuing to go there. It exposed the fact that the Praetorian Guard was nowhere in sight. They weren't able to protect uh, the, the, the Kremlin, so to speak. No, it, it was a mutiny. It was designed to be a power play. And, to, you know, I think Prigozhin had complained. He didn't think Russia was fighting violently enough, didn't think that they were moving fast enough. And so you, you bring it all together. But Vladimir Putin still looks at the situation at hand and says, you know, he can't still throw those other two, Shoigu, who is the minister of defense, more of a politician. The other guy, Gerasimov, same thing, more of a politician neither one of them are soldiers the bottom line about about Prigozhin is this he endures the hardship he dresses up he's got Instagram followers he's good at communication so from a leadership perspective he was the one that was able to get the guys the Wagner group guys to follow him on this mutiny 
and, and take it for as far as he can. He completely miscalculated, though. There's no, there's no I suspected he thought he was going to win at the end of this. And, um, you know, he gets he, he gets his life spared, but he's banished to Belarus. Well, now uh, that leads us to the follow up question. Not a coup, a mutiny. Was the mutiny based on something legitimate? As in, did Putin's uh, forces, did did his uh, ministers actually engage a bombing of the, I said Wagner, Wagner of forces? Or was mm-hmm. that all just pretense, as we see a lot of false flag conversations that take yeah. place when we talk about Ukraine? And this was just an opportunity. Maybe he thought it was an opportunity to raise his raise his cue. Yeah, it would have to have been very well planned, but there you know, clearly the reports show that the Wagner group fired on the Russian Air Force and downed the helicopter. There was casualties and everything. So it looked looks as real as possible. Um, and and for, for it to be this kind of, again, false flag, there's a lot of fiction going on here. It, 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 it was took a significant amount of planning. I, I think that he took it too far. I think he really thought that Vladimir Putin was going to back him up. And I thought that, that, that Putin, he thought that maybe Putin would put him in charge of all the troops. But, but Tony, the other thing, too, is those Wagner troops did not necessarily join the Russian military. Oh, no, no, no. They have no uh, they've been they've been reconstituted. They're 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 not being sent to the so-called front they're like, you know, Hogan's Heroes, the Russian front. That's not happening. Right. Um, you know, you're seeing after the fact now um, that that those those individuals are going to get reconstituted back in places like maybe Belarus, maybe sent to Syria and Africa again. But, but Vladimir Putin's not giving up on the Wagner group. He's had to come out against them because of what's happened to try to save some face. But he's not giving up. Each of these different groups now, these, these um, the, the, the power, you know, the oligarchs and, and the warlords really is what they are inside of Russia, have their own private militaries. And right now, Vladimir Putin's got the best one in the Wagner group. So now uh, talking to Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army, this leads us to where is Prigozhin at this very moment, and is his life in danger? Is Putin willing to just leave it be? I mean, there was a report, Newsweek, I think it was, mm-hmm. had the report, hold on, I, I think I have it right here, uh, that the Putin deal hands uh, Prigozhin $111 million in cash and gold bars, according yeah. to Russian media. That doesn't sound like a guy who's, you know, in fear for his life. Right. Where is he and what's going to happen to him? Yeah. So he, he was traced to Belarus for a while. He's trying to get back some things. I, I, he's been spotted in Moscow, in fact. Um, I, again, think there's going to be some time passing. He's not you know, he's popular amongst his troops. So so you martyr him amongst the twenty five thousand or plus Wagner groups and soldiers that are that are out there. This is all about them as well. The the the, the rank and file that that support him. If you look at his Instagram pictures, they're also in the pictures and, and, and the like. So, um, you know, he, he gets to Belarus in six months from now. And if he has a formidable force there, now they could start the little green man campaign that, that uh, they did in Crimea, uh, potentially into the Baltics, Latvia, Estonia. I know Poland has already activated its border. They're sending more than 500 more border patrol uh, troops to there. Cause they're concerned about him going there. So he still remains a wild card, I don't think he's getting, you know, the cup of cyanide tea or pushed out the window just yet. I think Vladimir Putin's going to keep him alive and see how this thing breaks out. Well, what's the what's the win? He's popular with his troops. I get that. Is the win that if you kill him, those troops will also once again mutiny? Yeah. Or is there some other advantage that Prigozhin gets? Because uh, 
look, a deal can always be struck, can always be made. Uh, 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 Prigozhin clearly sees himself a- as a somebody, and there's yeah. no doubt that he is just as volatile and dangerous and bloodthirsty uh, as we believe Putin uh, to be. It's not like he's some kind of hero uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in this situation. So yeah. is, is there a possibility of seeing Prigozhin back in a place at Putin's side? Yeah, you know, it's kind of maybe not his side, but uh, if you use the crime family analogy with what's going on in Russia, the Prigozhin's an earner. Uh, he makes money for the Kremlin. He makes money for Vladimir Putin, and that's what why he's valuable. Um, and the and the math is, if you take him out, no, that those revenue streams stop, um, his influence stops. Um, but but so you know, he, he gets banished to a to a neighboring country, which is fundamentally a, a, a an arm of the Soviet, you know, the former Soviet Union anyway. Belarus is, is you know, friends I have from Belarus say they were raised Russian. I mean, they, it's really part much much more part of Russia than actually uh, Ukraine could be. <clears throat> so, um, you know, he's under the thumb there of Lukashenko and that that situation. And now he, he pumps up Lukashenko, making him look look good. Um, I think Vladimir Putin is, again is going to put some more time in between here, look for other things to distract. And um, eventually Wagner becomes in six months, they get back to doing what they do best. And that's terrorizing uh, other countries and, and taking material and, and taking, uh, you know, taking advantage of it. One of the things that got discussed when this happened, talking to Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army, was the idea that this made Putin look weak. It showed him to be weak on the world stage. You mm-hmm. call it a mutiny, not a coup. Did the mutiny weaken Vladimir Putin to never mind the world's community, although that's part of the question, but to his own people and to his own military leaders and to those oligarchs who are wondering whether or not they need to keep up with this anymore, put up with this anymore. So if you monitor the first 48 to 72 hours after, um, there are certain other individuals that are, have disappeared. Some oligarchs have left. This, this turned out to be a loyalty test. And those loyal have stayed and uh, they've reconsolidated. So I wouldn't say it's it weakened him significantly, maybe not strengthened him like he'd like to be. He didn't consolidate, you know, he didn't consolidate power. Like you said, like you see in the Godfather, we didn't, you know, that, that didn't happen. But, um, you know, overall, he's still calling the shots. He created that ceremony where uh, the individuals that were responsible for uh, stopping the convoy, for example, they were celebrated in the, in one of the most historic places in, in the Kremlin there and in the outside. So, you know, they, they created enough pomp and circumstance around what happened? And they originally put out bad information uh, on Prigozhin that that said they was funded. Uh, he is he has been stealing from the state, so to speak. But um, but again, they can keep this information away from. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that going forward they won't continue to fund him and he does you know Russia's dirty work, which is really what he's been doing. That's just part one of my conversation with Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army military analyst, TV and radio, and my go-to guy. In part two of the interview, we get into Ukraine. Can Ukraine win this? I mean, that's the question. Can Ukraine win? Is Russia just, do they just have too many people, too many bodies they can throw at this situation? And what does a win look like? What actually could Vladimir Putin accept or not accept, be forced to accept? Is there a situation where Ukraine can really bring Vladimir Putin to the table kind of hat in hand and what in the world is going on with this nuclear power plant reactor thingamabob is this as dangerous as people are saying 
it is. I'll bring you part two coming up just after this. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. So in part one of my interview with Major Mike Lyons, we broke down what happened in this attempted quote-unquote coup, which he described as not a coup, but actually a mutiny with uh, the leader of the Wagner group, Prigozhin, and Vladimir Putin and marching these troops, trying to march them up or getting close to marching them up to Moscow. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. The second part of this interview with Major Mike Lyons gets into where Ukraine is, where the United States is, how much more money and time is it going to take, and does the United States have the appetite for it, and should they have the appetite for it? Now we take a look at where Ukraine is on all of this, because, of course, if you're if you're Vladimir Zelensky, you wanted Prigozhin to go all the way. You wanted him to be in Moscow. You wanted the bloody fight. Anything that would further demoralize the Russian troops, uh, so-called troops, uh, distract them, et et cetera. You don't get that. What is the situation now? Is Zelensky in a position where he can win? Or is this that the Russians just have so many bodies they're willing to throw at this fight that in the end, as you and I have discussed, one way or another, Vladimir Zelensky has given up the Donbass and this has to be over. Yeah, Russia can make this kind of strategic mistake and have this kind of misstep and have it not affect the battlefield. And that's, you know, you look back to, I hate to use an American analogy, but Abraham Lincoln took took a long time for him to finally find the right general. Uh, the, the North made a lot of mistakes during the Civil War. And, uh, you know, Robert E. Lee, you know, a couple of days ago, July 3rd, 1863, probably the most significant day in the 19th century, if Pickett's charge succeeds, and the South wins the, the, the battlefield uh, the day at Gettysburg, world's a different place. Um, so you, you put that analogy over here to, to what's going on in Ukraine, the kind of mistakes Russia continues to make still won't, won't matter because they, they have mass. They, they have 180,000 troops on the line right now. They're in dug-in defenses. They've been dug-in for six months. Um, and from, from my perspective, as much as we want to be as positive we can, as counteroffensive, uh, they claim that took, for example, 14 square miles. I, I don't want to diminish any real estate they took back because that was done with blood and treasure from from the Ukraine citizens and and the like. But that's not really a successful counteroffensive. They, you can't have a counteroffensive without air superiority. You can't have a counteroffensive without shock effect. I mean, we're like we're redefining this term to make it fit the narrative that they want us to fit. And um, it's just not there. So, again, Russia can make this kind of mistake. It's not going to affect the ground. What's what's happening inside of Ukraine? Let's talk about where uh, Americans are in uh, this uh, fight. This was NBC News. Uh, Peter Alexander uh, at, at the anchor chair speaking to a Republican uh, congressman. Um, let, let me share this with you and get your thoughts. Striking new polling from NBC shows that a majority of Republican primary voters right now say they would be less likely to vote for a candidate who supports funding Ukraine's war effort. You clearly have backed additional funding for Ukraine. What is your reaction to that number? And what is the consequence if the majority of Republicans, majority of members of your party get their way on that issue? 
But this is not a binary issue where it's either yes to more money or no, never to any more money. Most primary voters I talk to, and frankly, most members of Congress, uh, they'd want to make sure that whatever we do in the future uh, doesn't look like a blank check. We do need some accountability. It has been a lot of money. We do want to make sure that the Ukrainian government is making good use of those dollars. And uh, most primary voters I talk to are a lot more interested in providing uh, lethal aid, making sure that the Ukrainian soldiers have the ammunition they need need to hold the line. They're more comfortable with that than checks for, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 billion dollars. That's um that's an interesting number in terms of the amount of people uh, according to this poll uh that uh state that if you favor supporting Ukraine, they're less interested in in voting for you. All of a sudden Ukraine becomes a litmus test for Republicans in a primary, which politically I don't think is a smart move at all, but neither here nor there. Um, Is it your take that that is probably where uh, the Republican Party is? Is the Republican Party wrong in thinking that the support of Ukraine is is a foolhardy idea? I, I think the Republican Party is making a mistake, and they can explain why supporting Ukraine is in the best interests of the United States national security interests, because it is. And it's too bad it's becoming this this political situation here. Um, the bottom line is we have a, a country that's not in NATO that we're able to fund, basically fight a proxy war through, that is destroying the Russian military in place. It will never become the same military for the next 10 or 15 years, maybe even 20 years. It's going to it's destroyed its ability to wage um, um, foreign military sales because of the equipment that they're using is crap. And everybody's seeing it in the hands of the, of Russia. Uh, we see NATO working together like we've never seen them before. We see Germany involved. We see we see France involved. We see the British uh, sending uh, equipment that they, they hardly have. Uh, we can't say enough about what Poland is doing. So Net net, th- this has become uh, an, a unifying event, you know, given what's going on. And from if you look at uh, United States national security interests, it's in our interest right now. We're in for a penny, in for a pound at this point as well. So to all of a sudden think we're going to pull the plug on it, I, 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 who knows on the timeline? Who knows how that's going to go? Um, but um, let, let's hope at least it doesn't get the politics and, and get in, make, make, become a football over the next two years. You're, you're arguing that it's in the United States' best interest. You, you still believe this, yeah, that it is in the U.S. best interest to keep yeah. supporting Ukraine with the dollars and with the hardware, but not with troops. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly right. And and that number shows you the administration has done a crappy job of explaining that. What are the interests here? What are there? I mean, there's no other guarantees. There's no guarantee that Ukraine becomes part of NATO. There's nothing else here. They want to fight for their independence and freedom. They think they could do that. Um, I don't I, I was first concerned about the United States, you know, kind of managing the slow destruction of Ukraine. But we're seeing that Russia does not have this capability to vanquish Ukraine. Now, Ukraine doesn't have it either. And even, and even when we, if we gave them F-16s and ATACMs and all these other strategic weapons, they're not vanquishing Russia either. So at some point, it, they, they get tired. Uh, Vladimir Putin maybe gets has a real coup. Maybe he's out. There's lots of things that could go on. But I, I think you're going to see resolution at some point um, b- based on the amount of material and things that are getting destroyed there. And again, it's still in our best interest. Let's, uh, b- before I, I let you go, uh, so much talk has been uh, about uh, Zaporizhia. Zaporizhia. Yeah. Man, that's a difficult one. 
that's a that's a hard one right there. And this is a nuclear power plant. Right. And the Russians say that the Ukrainians are trying to blow it up. And the mm -hmm. Ukrainians say that the Russians yeah. are trying to blow it up. And when a lot of people are talking, there's the possibility that these people will blow up a nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. Is there a possibility that these people will blow up a nuclear power plant? What is the real story here? Right. So here's, first of all, the power plant is offline. There are six reactors that have been offline. Four of them have been offline for the past nine months. The last two, the last one was just taken offline the last few days ago. The, the one before that was a few months ago. So there's not, there's no situation of like a Chernobyl. There's not going to be an internal explosion that's going to cause uh, radioactive material to fly through the sky and the like. Now, that's not to say it can't be destroyed. It can't be bombed or it can't, you know, can't be wrecked on some level. And there is nuclear material inside the reactor. It has to still be maintained because of, of, of the way that the nuclear rods work. There still has to be auxiliary power that has to make sure that those rods stay cool. OK. Now, again, it sits on the wrong side of the Dnieper River. It sits on the southern side where the Russians are, and the Russians have now kicked all the Ukrainians out of there. So the Russia now has 100% responsibility for that. So if something does happen to it, the whole world will blame Russia. I, I suspect if it, from anything, it's a scorched from a scorched earth perspective. It, they might, it might be destroyed, or it might have, you know, some. It, it might be rendered inoperable for a few years. But I, I don't see any kind of catastrophic event that's going to take place. Even if they put some landmines on the top or if they put landmines around it, they're just trying to kill the soldiers that are going to eventually try to liberate it. But with the Russians, the ones who will take the heat, yeah. certainly uh, the back and forth makes more sense uh, now before I, I let you go. Can, can Zelensky and Ukraine win this? And what exactly is win? So here's my definition of win. First of all, they have to mount a true counteroffensive. They have to figure out a place that they can actually create shock effect and puncture Russian defensive forces, either using artillery, using combined arms, having some level of air superiority at some place. They have nine brigades still in reserve. They're still eight to 12 weeks away from NATO equipment showing up. NATO equipment gives them survivability. That's the thing Ukraine can't have is casualties, okay? U Ukraine has got to have crews that are sitting in tanks that survive. They're going to be able to plow through obstacles and live and to fight. I think, I think that still has to happen in the South. I think you have to trade off what's going on in the North. It looks like the Russians are having some kind of counteroffensive in the North trying to retake Kherson because the Ukraine uh, had a counteroffensive last September and took that city back. So Russia is all about the past, all about trying to get that back. The only way that Ukraine gets Russia to the negotiation table is if they can break through the South, they can break through in the, in the South and threaten Crimea. Now you see Zelensky saying he wants to take Crimea. I don't think he has the material to do that. There's no, he would need 300,000 men uh, to do that. But if he threatens it, if he can bring, we bring attackums, we bring others, give them, give them some more things, some more drones, give, give them the kind of the next level of equipment there. If he threatens Crimea, then he gets Russia to the negotiation table. But he still might lose Crimea because, as we've talked about, Tony, Crimea is the most strategic, important military Navy base that Russia has. But you're you're making the argument that Putin would fold after over a year and this trying to convince his own people that this is in their best interest and the best future of Mother Russia. He could fold and walk away with nothing that's on the table. Well, he would, yeah, if, if all of a sudden you had 20,000 Russian soldiers surrender, he would be forced to negotiate. He'd want to, he'd stop, he would stop at ceasefire prior to, you know, letting it go any further. 
And I think part of that negotiation would be he would still want to keep Crimea. He might want to keep some of those areas up on the Donbass region. He might want to create a new border. Um, I think he would just use it as a way to buy time because knowing full well that they don't have the resources to take Crimea. They'd have, they would have to then pivot, go to the south, and then leave themselves exposed in the northern areas there. So th that's the key. He has to threaten Crimea, not take it. And, and I, I don't think Vladimir Putin would have any other choice but to say, let's have a ceasefire. Now, that's not to say the Russians still wouldn't stop digging in. And they still couldn't start the war. It would be like it would be like North Korea and South Korea. You, you might have a ceasefire that exists as a, for the next 50 years. Who knows? Which would which would then put a, 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 a damper on uh, Ukraine joining NATO because you can't have a NATO country that doesn't have a secure border. That's one of those requirements. And, and that would that would that alone would keep Ukraine out of NATO. And if that's good for Vladimir Putin, that might be good for that might be good enough for now. Yeah, we're going to have to have a conversation about Ukraine and NATO. Uh, another time, Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army. I appreciate you taking the time. I love the breakdown. I, I love being able to kind of get into the weeds and, and understand what happened. I just found it amazing that this whole story went away. It went away. It was gone. It was the most important pressing thing the world had seen, and the news was coming fast and furious. I wasn't joking. I had a guy text me, pull out extra cash, because when Putin's backed into a corner, it's going to be cyber attacks on the U.S., and it's going to be banking systems and electric grids. Listen, as a concept, I understood what the dude was saying. It's from a source that I trust, a source that I utilize. I understood what he saw as the real issue if x then y then z it was natural progression but we went from that and, and everything that, that we saw to, to to nothing nothing is always very peculiar to me when we get to silence i'm always like how 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 in the world is that even possible it was the biggest story in the world and now there's no story whatsoever no there can't be no story whatsoever if there's no story whatsoever now, then we weren't told the totality of the story when it happened. And so much of this, so much of this, this Russia story is exactly why we go by the philosophy here. And you've heard me talk about this many times. I don't care about being first to the story. I care about being right. And because of that, I will wait a day and sometimes two days when, when some catastrophe happens or when some story breaks to get the information right before really digging in. I'll share with you what we've got uh, to the extent that it's, it's, it's serious, legitimate, et cetera, to the best of my ability. But in terms of what it means, how are you supposed to do that unless you have the information? But so many people are so desperate for that damn click. They are so desperate to be first. They don't care. And what I find problematic is that it seems to me that they're able to survive like that. So maybe now uh, the problem is me. Others don't care. It doesn't mean anything to them, uh, whether or, or, or not. It doesn't mean anything to anybody, whether or not the story is right. Uh, it, it matters to me. It, uh, it, it does. It does. It matters to me. And so that's why I wanted to go over it with Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army. I wanted to make sure that I had the story correct. I wanted to make sure I understood all of the moving parts. And I wanted to make sure that what we were being told played out with what we what, what actually happened. What we were told isn't necessarily 
what happened. Now, some people might see it differently than Major Lions, and I'm certainly willing to listen to those people. I thought it was interesting calling it a mutiny and not not a coup. That might be a distinction without a difference. It might be just a, a very important distinction. I'm curious as to how Vladimir Putin would really see it. Because the idea that Prigozhin is an earner is, to me, not enough for a paranoid, crazy guy who's already suffering massive issues with the Ukrainian military to keep a guy around who might inspire somebody else to be a little cuckoo and try something. I, everything that I know about Putin doesn't lead itself to that direction that Putin's a pragmatic cat. But when it comes to money in your life, sometimes people wise up real quick. Sometimes. I'm not saying that's the case here. My thanks to Major Mike Lyons. More to get to. Find everything at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz today. You know, the president uh, uh, is proud to have restored the rule of law uh, in his administration. And I can tell you here and I can tell you now that he will not exploit uh, his the uh, his office with conventions at the White House, like it was done in the last administration. He will not do that uh, in his uh, on the South Lawn in his administration. I can uh, uh, I can assure you that will not happen. Joe Biden restoring the rule of law. Sure, that's uh, why the cocaine was found, because he's restoring the rule uh, of of law. He tried to push an eviction moratorium after the Supreme Court uh, said no. He's trying to find an end around to the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court says you can't just cancel student loan debt. But he has restored the rule of law. I don't even know what she's talking about with the South Lawn. The only thing I know that's happened on the lawn is that men who claim to be women and have surgeries to look like women are flashing people in his administration. Th- this is this is what we know. These are the facts as presented. Corinne Jean-Pierre is a gift. A gift that keeps on giving. I'm out in Vegas for the next couple of days. I'll be back on Tuesday. I love you. I'll catch you next time. Take care.